This is Frontiers in Economic Research. I'm your host, Brendan Cunningham from Eastern Connecticut State University. This is episode four, recorded November 5th, 2017. This podcast is a brief summary of recent research in economics intended primarily for scholars. I will include links to the papers in the show notes for those looking to follow up with a particular paper. If you have any feedback, please send email to feedback at fer.fyi or visit fer.fyi where you can leave comments. In this episode, I host my guest who discusses the principal agent problem in war. I also summarize a few key NBER working papers which were released last week. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is Owen McGurk. Uh, Owen is a postdoctoral associate at Yale University. Owen, uh, welcome to FER. Thanks, Brandon. Great to be here. Great. Thanks for coming on the show. And I saw a paper you'd written recently written, co-authored with Nathaniel Hilger and Nicholas Miller, entitled The Game, Moral Hazard and War in the U.S. Congress. And uh, the paper appealed to me for a variety of reasons. Uh, first, the the title is really very clever. Uh, it's a play on the the term "no skin in the game." Um, I uh, I tried to do a little bit of uh, etymolog- etymological research on that term, um, where, where this term "no skin in the game" comes from, um, and uh, I, I guess there's some controversy over where it comes from. Some people attribute it to Warren Buffett, uh, but then I guess there's something in Shakespeare. Um, oh that uh, one of his plays where this term skin in the game comes up. But I, I guess it's, yeah, this notion that people have a, a vested interest in outcomes and, and, and it also pertains to this problem we sometimes study, these principal agent problems um, where someone is doing something on behalf of someone else, but they're, they're, the two parties might not have aligned incentives. I, I guess Levitt, um, had this well-known paper regarding real estate agents that, um, so we're literally talking about agents in that case where uh, he, he shows that real estate agents handle their own properties, properties that they own um, in a manner differently than they handle other people's properties. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think your paper is, is tied to that literature in some ways, but um, it's very, very novel and it actually addresses uh, a critical issue, uh, particularly for the U.S., uh, the U.S. is sort of currently in this extended period of conflict. Um, some of its lo- longest wars are, are are taking place right now. I think Afghanistan, um, you know, the ex- Afghanistan um, engagement has exceeded the length of ev- any um, prior war. And so you're kind of looking at, you know, how wars um, get political support and. Um, the people involved in that decision making, or that's how I think about it. Is that is that kind of what you're looking at in the paper, or, or um... yeah, yeah, it it, it is at, at at the most fundamental level. Um, the paper comes from a reading of the literature on violent conflict, on the economics literature on violent conflict, and it's probably not too surprising to learn that the enduring question in that literature is why does violent conflict happen at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that might sound like like a like a silly question, but when you think carefully about it, 
uh, as an economist or as many political scientists have done, it's, it's a useful question because any, any allocation of resources that you could have after a conflict, you could have arranged prior to the conflict without any of the, the physical destruction that occurs in conflict, right? So, so James Freon had this really well-known critique in 1995, and he said, look, any, any paper that takes this question seriously has to account for the absence of a negotiated settlement. It has to account for the failure of some sort of bargaining that then led to conflict, okay? So then he proposes some avenues. And one avenue in particular, I think, spawned a huge literature. And I'm sure he's not the only person to have proposed this, but it broadly relates to incomplete contracting. So let's say you and I, Brendan, are potential belligerents in a conflict. We have come up with some sort of a transfer, some sort of a deal that we're both satisfied with. That only works if there is a threat, credible third party contract enforcement mechanism, right? So if property rights are secured by, by courts or by some government that has a monopoly on, on legitimate violence. Otherwise, as long as you or I have an individual incentive to renege, there is going to be conflict. So what's going on in, in this sort of really well-known economic shocks empirical literature, you know, which, which, which I've worked on as well, is sort of this incomplete contracting story. And that's why we see so much violence in, in areas that don't have sort of strong institutions, as it were. Another theory that he mentions in this paper is something that I don't think gained any empirical traction, which is exactly, as you said, this broad notion of principal agency problems. Um, and in this specific literature, these are, these are generally known as, as political agency problems, where the principal is the electorate. The agent are political actors who are, who are voted in by the electorate. And the problem is you know, whether or not agents are behaving um, or, or, or are looking after the interests of the electorate or looking after their own interests. So when you apply that to the problem of conflict, it becomes really clear how this could contribute to violence, which is that if a leader stands to gain from the benefits of war, without internalizing the costs, then, and, and not to sound like too much of an economist, then the optimal level of wars will be exceeded, right? There'll be more than the socially optimal level of war. So this is the literature that, that we started from. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the conversation that we were having. And we challenged ourselves to think of a setting where we could get at this empirically. Mm -hmm. And it became very, very clear that looking at how US legislators voted for conflict during the conscription era was the way to do it. Mm -hmm. Because we can measure who is for or against conflict. Mm -hmm. And we figured it was possible to get information on these legislators' households. And the reason why that's important is quite clearly during the conscription era, some legislators are more exposed to the costs of conflict than others, right? So if you have a son, who is draft eligible age, mm -hmm. uh, you are more likely to internalize the cost of conflict than I am if I have a daughter of draft eligible age. And the big argument we're making in our paper is that aside from the difference in the gender of our draft eligible child, we are otherwise identical. Mm -hmm. And there should be no other difference between you and I, observable or unobservable, that contributes to our you know, decision on whether or not to enter a war. So it, it, it comes from that same political agency um, mm -hmm. 
model that has been applied to, let's say, shareholders and managers, real estate agents, and, and you know, many, many, many other applications. Uh, and it's just taking the political agency version of that and applying it to the conflict literature. Um, so that was the, the, the sort of the fundamental motivation. Um, we kind of realized as we progressed in the paper that we were touching on a different topic as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we end up sort of at the, the intersection of these two literatures. So one is causes of conflict. But the second is the more and more we read about political agency and legislative decision making, um, the more clear it became that there was a gap in the literature that, that we, we, we think we're, we're, we're at least extending a foot into. Mm -hmm. And this is on the determinants of legislative decision making. What makes a US congressperson vote in a certain way on an issue? And it turns out that there's quite a lot of um, agreement on, on maybe four determinants. Mm -hmm. um, so the first one being a legislator's constituents' preferences, you know, harking back to the old median voter theory. You know, a legislator, all else equal, um, will we'll try to represent the preferences of their electorate because that helps them win election. Okay, that's, that's fairly straightforward. And I think there's quite a lot of evidence that that at least contributes to how legislators vote. A second modification on that is how a legislator's own support group behaves. So this is the idea of sort of maybe endogenizing turnout, that leaders put a little bit more weight on their constituents who are, you know, maybe members of their own party, right? This is sort of energizing the base kind of way of thinking. Mm -hmm. A third one then that, again, seems to have a lot of empirical support is the national party line. Okay, so if you're a Republican in Congress, the party line, the one that's espoused by your party leadership, um, you are going to be partly influenced by that. Okay, maybe you're concerned about your career. Maybe this gets you on the right sort of congressional committees, um, but you know, there is plenty of evidence out there that that contributes to legislative decision-making. And then what I found interesting is sort of the fourth sort of residual determinant of legislative decision-making is generally referred to as just ideology, mm -hmm. okay? Just your, your fixed preferences as a legislator, it's not affected by your voter preferences, it's not affected by the party line, just the way you are wired, mm -hmm. and it's not particularly malleable, it, it, it just comes with you and it's, it's how you vote. Mm -hmm. What was striking to me from this initially superficial reading of the literature is that there's no room in that setup for other private costs and benefits. Mm -hmm. okay? there, there's nothing there to suggest that politicians are malleable. Mm -hmm that you can change the way they vote by giving them a campaign contribution mm -hmm. or by in some other way, so making some quid pro quo arrangement that changes their mind. Mm -hmm. okay, so, so we have these sort of bulletproof politicians who are not malleable and not influenced by private costs and benefits orthogonal to their ideology. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think that's a little hard to swallow maybe when, when you think about, for example, the amount of money in politics or mm -hmm. the amount of evidence or suggestive evidence on, you know, on corruption that we see in different settings in different parts of the world. So we began to think of our paper as you know, one way of getting at moral hazard and conflict, but also testing whether or not a private cost or benefit, such as mm -hmm. the exposure of your child to war, can affect the way you vote in Congress and we will sort of make the argument that, you know, the gender of your draft age child 
is not associated with your ideology, it's not associated with the party line, and it's you know orthogonal to your voters' preferences. Yeah, no, that's that's yeah, great. No, that's that's great. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And so, did you so did find you... that there was some impact of these these personal considerations on the the decision making of of politicians when it when it came to the issue of conflict? I mean, um, it sounds like you get we're able to gather data on their voting patterns. You were able to g- gather data on their families, and um, was there any relationship between family composition, say, and, and voting patterns. Right. So so the main sort of headline result um, that, that we lead with is congressmen with draft-eligible sons are about 10% less likely to vote for conscription than congressmen with draft-eligible daughters. Mm. So that's that works out at about 6.5 percentage points mm. in the difference. Mm-hmm. And we're able to estimate that with legislator fixed effects. Okay, so the draft age boundary moves from vote to vote, which means that we can just control for all time invariant characteristics of a legislator. And doing that, with or without that, we, we see that there is a, a fairly large and, and significant effect of, of, of sort of being exposed to the draft. So that's the sort of main headline result. But you know, the question you asked was, you know, do you find evidence that you know, these self-interested private motives do these do these uh, influences uh, change the way a legislator votes? So you could argue that that headline result doesn't quite get us there. Okay, so our favorite interpretation would be, I have a draft-eligible son, I'm more exposed, I'm voting against the draft because I don't want that personal cost you know, relative to you. You could say to me, you know what, that may not quite hit the self-interest motive nail on the head, it could be the case that because I have a draft eligible son, suddenly the costs of conflict become very salient to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, suddenly the, the horrors of war, uh, I can think about them more closely. I can imagine what would happen if my son were drafted, and that's horrifying to me. And suddenly I have this sort of enlightened empathy. And I don't want my electorate to go through with this. And you know, this could change my ideology. And so what we're identifying in that main result is not necessarily something nefarious. You know, it, it might just be an enlightened empathy that's triggered mm-hmm. by having a son of draft age. So we try to get past this. And the best way we can think of doing this is by treating the upper age cutoff as sort of a, a discontinuity. So what do I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Let's say the upper draft age cutoff is 40. Mm-hmm. And let's say I have a 39-year-old son. Mm-hmm. So in the self-interested world, I'm voting against the draft. I don't want my son to go, go to war. Let's say my son turns 41. Suddenly he is above the threshold. He's not going to go to war if I vote for the draft. So I just do what is otherwise optimal. Mm-hmm. Now, if the story was empathy, you would imagine that empathy takes a little while longer to wear off. Right? Sure. If, sure. if me having a 39-year-old son makes me empathetic to others in the same situation, I shouldn't become a hawk the moment my son turns 41. Sure. sure. Okay. So if you, if you buy that, if you're okay with that setup, then we can just run a regression discontinuity around that. And we find, mm-hmm. again, with legislator fixed effects, the moment your son crosses the upper threshold, your support for the draft jumps by 15 percentage points. 
Wow. So wow. Yeah, that, no, that, yeah. That's a larger effect than the average one we find. And that, that indicates at least that you know, a lot of what we're seeing is, is, is self-interest. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. That, that's really fascinating. And I think there are a lot of other issues that kind of come to mind when, when you start to think about that result. So are you able to then sort of run a counterfactual where if you kind of, um, ch you know, ch change the genders of like all the members of Congress, let's say, would the, would the votes for war have have not passed. I mean, do you do you look at anything like that? I mean, it, it, you know, it's still there's still we're still talking about, you know, there'd mm -hmm. be some confidence interval in that that kind of counterfactual. But um, do you think your results would allow you to be able to do that? Or well, a very very brief back of the envelope shows that if everyone had a draft eligible son, that would not on average change the unconditional probability of a pro-draft vote from above to below 50. It would bring us from around 60 to somewhere in the 50s. Oh, wow. What would be interesting for us to do, though, now that you say this, is we see that the effect is larger in closer votes, mm -hmm. consistent mm -hmm. with the idea that if there's a chance your vote is pivotal, Mm -hmm. Right. You're right. The effect is larger because you know there's a higher likelihood that your vote will actually determine whether or not your son goes. Mm. So I guess one thing we could do is sort of look at these pivotal votes and run some counterfactuals and say, okay, if we increase the number of politicians with draft eligible sons by a certain amount, mm -hmm. um, or you know how many how many congressmen would need to have draft eligible sons for that to be able to sort of. Um, to flip some of the the, the sort of landmark pro conscription bills, so so that's something we could we could definitely look at and maybe um maybe yeah make some <laughs> make make some uh, extrapolate some interpretations and see what <laughs> what would happen. But sure. one thing that's interesting is we have about about twenty one percent of our Congress people um, have draft eligible sons, right? Mm -hmm. So it's only about a fifth of of, of our sample who who are treated in that sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Very, very interesting. And, and you know, I think there, there are, there are other issues. You know, social issues um, that that kind of come to mind as well. So, you know, I think you you primarily focus on this era when when uh, drafts were the primary way that the military was staffed. And of course, these days, uh, it's a what's called a all volunteer military. There, there's still the some risk of conscription uh, in the United States. There's a um, selective service system. Um, the, recently, there have been discussions about whether that selective service system, currently only uh, men have to register with the selective service after they turn 18. Uh, there's been some discussion about whether um, that selective service would, uh, registration would be extended to include women. So that 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 um, kind of issue comes to mind as well. I think that a policy question might be a little bit relevant because um, then, then you kind of draw in uh, more le potentially more legislators uh, who who might have a child that's impacted by conflict. And and then there is also that issue of the transition to an all volunteer military. So there's a literature that looks at that and says, well, this is the optimal way to staff a military because you know, or I mean, from 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 an economist's perspective, you you know, volunteering is uh, is kind of the best possible outcome because people are choosing to do it, <laughs> um, and if they're choosing to do it, then the value of the transaction they they value the transaction greater than 
um, you know, the, the, the cost of it. And so, um, you know, it's, it's the best possible outcome. But a lot of people have said that, um, you know, because it does not, it concentrates the kind of the, the cost of conflict among a certain group and not everybody is exposed uh, to paying the cost of conflict, then um, it can, the, the, an all-volunteer military can kind of change the likelihood um, that conflict might take place. And and I think, you know, that kind of intersects with, with a lot of um, what you do in your paper. So, I mean, those were some policy issues that came to my mind, but uh, have you thought about those or others? I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're certainly cautious about what we have to say about policy, given that it's just one paper and, and that, you know, there are a lot of nuances to military policy that, you know, we're not quite experts in. But we can say a few interesting things. Firstly, as you say, you know, one of the most enjoyable parts of, of working on this paper is sifting through archival reports around all of these votes mm -hmm. uh, and trying to learn about, you know, whether a certain measure was a pro-draft or anti-draft measure and, and sort of getting a flavor for the debates and the arguments at the time. And a lot of the debate did center around there's an efficiency argument for the draft. Some said there was a fairness one. Okay, and this goes back mm -hmm. to Abraham Lincoln and mm -hmm. saying that, you know, if, if the, the, the probability of being drafted should sort of fall equally on all able-membered people in society, mm -hmm. economists would probably balk at that and say, look, let prices do the work and, and let, let, mm -hmm. let an all-volunteer all army um, so, right, so going back to Abraham Lincoln, who made the, the fairness argument saying that the probability of, of, uh, of conscription should fall equally on all able member people. Again, economists definitely, I think, would favor an all-volunteer army, let free will and prices do the work of staffing, um, of staffing an army. So we, we don't, we're not going to come in and, and make a claim either way and say the draft is good or the draft is bad, but we can say this, that in the debate, on whether or not you know, the US should have all volunteer versus conscription army. When we're thinking about the trade-offs and the costs and benefits, it's important to consider the moral hazard element of an all volunteer, of all volunteer army. That those who make decisions on whether or not we enter conflict, the legislators in the House and Senate are unlikely to internalize the costs in the way that other families in society will. And, you know, that may not in any way offset the other benefits of an all-volunteer army, but it's something that should be considered when we weigh the costs and benefits. This is an argument that was made actually by Uwe uh, Reinhardt from Princeton. Mm. In, it was in the New York Times in 2014. Mm. Um, and he, he basically foresaw the results of our paper. Um, we were unaware mm. of this at, at the time, mm. but he said, look, this is a moral hazard story. It's unlikely that our, our sitting congressmen and congresswomen are... are are sending their own children off to conflict, and you know, by sheltering them from these risks of conflict, um, they might be more hawkish than they otherwise would be. So, so we're just showing that this is something that exists, and it's something that you can think about. Now, there are other Congress people like Chuck Rangel, who who are all for bringing back the draft for this particular reason, because of the distributional mm -hmm. consequences of, of of conflict as it is. Um, so we're not, you know, we don't want to get too close to to that debate. We're just adding one little data point in, into the conversation. You, you do raise an interesting point about policy prescriptions in general. And, and what I find sort of funny about political economy, which is you know, one, one of two areas where, where, I, where my work is situated, is the idea of a policy implication. Right? So if you're studying most political economy papers, you're studying the behavior of political representatives. 
most of the time, your policy implication, as it would be sort of framed in a, in a different literature, relates to the behavior of the elected official. Right? Mm -hmm. So let's say if we're studying, if we're studying I.O., like yourself, or the economics of education, and in the end there's a clear policy prescription that will improve some outcome, you can take that to a politician or to some advocacy group and say, you know, it should be in the interest of whoever's in power to make this change because there's a benefit at the end. Mm -hmm. In political economy, your implication is usually that a politician should constrain themselves more. <laughs> you know, that your, your, your implication is um, uh, you should stop thinking of your own self-interest and think more about voter preferences, or you mm -hmm. should constrain yourself in some way, um, which is inherently strange as, as, as a policy implication. So I think one thing that, that political economists and political scientists should perhaps think a little more about when they're wrapping up a paper like this and when you get to the paragraphs where you start thinking about policy implications is to maybe gear your implications towards civil society and we'll say the fourth estate, media and journalists. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I think the most interesting and maybe actionable consequence of our, of our one small paper is that, look, there's some evidence that politicians act in their self-interest. And if they act in their self-interest when it comes to their draft and the exposure of their children, it's possible that they act in their self-interest when it comes to other things. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. And this is a useless implication for politicians themselves, unless there are you know, some good types and bad types, and maybe good types could put pressure on bad types to you know, make public their assets or make public their, mm -hmm. what they stand to gain or lose from a particular measure. But I think far more interesting is for journalists, um, to be aware of this and for voters to be aware of this and for voters and journalists to demand more information on, on um, you know, the assets and liabilities of politicians. You know, and you know, this is something that they implicitly do already. This is why we want presidents to publish their tax returns, you know, mm -hmm. up, up until now at least, um, is to get a handle on what they stand to gain or lose from different policies. So it's always been something we've all suspected. Mm -hmm. um, I think our paper does, does it... A, a decent job in exposing the fact that this this is this is possible and certainly true in our case. What would be very interesting would be to see more papers that can identify moral hazard, that can identify the role of private influences in more domains. Right? For us it's just the gender of a child. It'd be very interesting to see if there's some exogenous change in the value of an asset or a liability that a politician has and if that affects the way they vote on a certain measure. I think that would be a really, really fruitful avenue for future research. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think I think this is really, really important work. Um, you know, especially with as as many democracies as there are around the world, um, structured in different ways, but many of them fa facing this this kind of issue. So, um, you know, I, I thank you for your contribution here and for coming on the show. Uh, I think it's I think it's uh, great scholarship, and I wish you the best of luck with your research and everything else. And and thanks again for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Brendan. All right, great one. As I mentioned earlier, the title of my guest's paper is No Kin in the Game, Moral Hazard and War in the U.S. Congress by McGurk, Hilger, and Miller. And you can find the paper at link number one in the show notes. We now turn to the micro papers in the series. 
The first of these papers deals with gender in the field of economics. The authors document the representation of female economists on the conference program at the NBER Summer Institute from 2001 through 2016. Over the period 2013 to 16, women made up 20.6% of all authors on scheduled papers. However, the authors observed there was large dispersion across programs with the share of female authors ranging from a low of 7.3% to a high of 47.7%. While the average share of women rose slightly from 18.5% since 2001 through 2004, a persistent gap between finance, macroeconomics, and microeconomics subfields remains, with women consisting of 14.4% of authors in finance, 16.3% of authors in macroeconomics, and 25.9% of authors in microeconomics. The authors examined three channels potentially affecting female representation. First, using anonymized data on submissions, the authors show that the rate of paper acceptance for women is statistically indistinguishable to that of men. Second, the authors find that the share of female authors is comparable to the share of women amongst all tenure-track professors, but is 10 percentage points lower than the share of women among assistant professors. Finally, within conference program, the authors find that when a woman organizes the program, the share of female authors and discussants is higher. The title of the paper is Gender Representation in e Economics Across Topics and Time, by Chari and Goldsmith Pinkham. The next paper is in the field of law and economics. The authors observe that presidents often attach statements to the bills they sign into law, purporting to celebrate, construe, or object to provisions in the statute. Though long a feature of U.S. lawmaking, the president has avowedly attempted to use these signing statements as a tool of strategic influence over judicial decision-making since the 1980s. That is, this is a way of creating presidential legislative history to supplement and at times supplant the traditional congressional legislative history conventionally used by the courts to interpret statutes. In this paper, the authors examine a novel dataset of judicial opinion citations to presidential signing statements in order to conduct the most comprehensive empirical examination of how courts have received presidential legislative history to date. They have three main findings. First, contrary to the per pervasive fears in the literature on signing statements, courts very rarely cite signing statements in their decisions. Second, in the aggregate, when courts cite signing statements, they cite them in predictably partisan ways. This effect, however, is driven entirely by the behavior of Republican-appointed appellate jurists. Third, courts predominantly employ signing statements to buttress aligned statutory text and conventional sources of legislative history, and seemingly never rely on them to overrule contrary plain statutory text. This finding suggests that signing statements have low rank among interpretive tools. Presidents have largely failed to establish an alternative corpus of valid interpretive material in the author's view. The title of the paper is Signing Statements and Presidentializing Legislative History by De Figueredo and Stiglitz, and you can find the paper at link number three in the show notes. We next have two papers on political economy. 
The first addresses the issue of voter mobilization campaigns. The authors observe that these campaigns face trade-offs in young democracies. In a large-scale experiment implemented in 2013 with the Kenyan Electoral Commission, IEBC, text messages intended to mobilize, voter, mobilize voters boosted participation, but also decreased trust in electoral institutions after the election. The authors find the decrease was stronger in areas that experienced election-related violence, and for individuals on the losing side of the election, this effect was stronger as well. The authors find that the mobilization backfired because the IEBC promised an electronic voting system that failed, resulting in manual voting and tallying delays. The authors use a simple model and they show signaling high institutional capacity via a mobilization campaign can negatively affect beliefs about the fairness of an election. The title of the paper is The Perils of Voter Mobilization by Marx, Pons, and Surrey, and you can find the paper at link number four in the show notes. The author of the next paper is interested in ascertaining how democracy emerges from author authoritarian rule. The author observes that influential theories contend that incumbents deliberately choose to share or surrender power. They do so to prevent revolution, motivate citizens to fight wars, incentivize governments to provide public goods, outbid elite rivals, or limit factional violence. The author examines the history of all democratizations since 1800 and shows that such deliberate choice arguments may help explain up to one-third of cases. But in about two-thirds, democratization occurred not because incumbent elites chose, chose it, but because, in contrast, while trying to prevent it, they made mistakes that weakened their hold on power. These mistakes reflect well-known cognitive biases, such as overconfidence and the illusion of control. The title of the paper is Democracy by Mistake by Treisman, and you can find the paper at link number five in the show notes. We next have a number of papers in the field of labor economics. The first of these uh, estimates the causal effects of offshoring on domestic employment. The authors observe that this effort is difficult because of the inherent simultaneity of multinational firms' domestic and foreign affiliate employment decisions. In this paper, the authors resolve this identification problem using variation in bilateral tax treaties, BTTs, which reduce the effective cost of offshore activity by mitigating double taxation. The authors derive a panel difference in differences research design from a standard model of simultaneity problems and show how to resolve it using BTTs as an instrument for offshore employment. The authors confirm that new treaty implementation is uncorrelated with existing employment trends. Overall, they find modest positive effects of offshore activity on domestic employment. A 10% BTT-induced increase in affiliate employment abroad drives a 1.8% increase in employment at the U.S. parent firm, with smaller effects at the industry and regional levels. 
The title of the paper is The Labor Market Effects of Offshoring by U.S. Multinational Firms by Kovac, Oldensky, and Sly, and you can find the paper at link number six in the show notes. The next paper looks at a very novel form of gathering labor for productive purposes. That is a new technique called crowdsourcing, which is a collaborative form of content production based on the contributions of large groups of individuals, a technique that has proliferated in the past 10 years. Due to this growth, the authors observe that recent research has focused on understanding the factors that affect its sustainability. Prior studies have highlighted the importance of volunteers' pro-social motivations, the sense of belonging to a community, and symbolic rewards within crowdsourcing websites. The authors observe that one factor that has received limited attention in the existing literature is how the design of crowdsourcing platforms affects their sustainability. The authors study whether the design element is a factor that affects the level and quality of crowdsourcing contributions. They investigate this in the context of Zooniverse, the world's largest crowdsourced science site in which volunteers contribute to scientific research by performing data processing tasks. The author's choice of empirical setting is motivated by the fact that one of the Zooniverse projects, Cyclone Center, underwent a format change that decreased the divisibility of contributions by bundling together two tasks which were previously separate. They refer to contributions for which both tasks were done as complete and contributions for which only one task was done as incomplete. Within that context, the authors develop a theoretical model that predicts first a positive relationship between contribution divisibility and the total number of contributions per volunteer. Second, an ambiguous relationship between contribution divisibility and the number of complete contributions per volunteer. And third, an ambiguous relationship between contribution divisibility and the value of complete contributions. They test these predictions empirically by exploiting the format change in Cyclone Center and find that after the format change, which decreased contribution divisibility, first, the total number of contributions per volunteer decreased, second, the number of complete contributions made by anonymous volunteers increased, while that made by registered volunteers remained unchanged, and third, the value of complete contributions increased because anonymous volunteers who increased their number of complete contributions contributed high-quality contributions. The results have strategic implications for crowdsourcing. The title of the paper is Storm Crowds Evidence from Zooniverse on Crowd Contribution Design by Barbosu and Gans, and you can find the paper at link number seven in the show notes. paper is on education and labor markets, more specifically vocational education. The authors observe that economic integration has brought about not only benefits and opportunities, but also required adjustment, especially for the youth entering the labor force. The lower growth rates characterizing the post-global financial crisis era and the concerns about income inequality put to the fore the degree that better targeted investment in human capital may ameliorate the challenges facing the world excuse me, the working poor. 
The authors use cross-country data and find that association between the income shares of the working poor, dependence on manufacturing sector, and the availability of vocational education. Conditioning on tertiary educational attainment, improved access to better vocational education will probably contribute more than large increases in regular college attainment. They also note that a tracking of technical training and educational budget, shown in the case of Vietnam in comparison to Thailand, as well as government subsidies for reskilling of labor force through their career in Singapore, is a potential explanation for their relative manufacturing competitiveness in these particular countries. The title of the paper is Vocational Education, Manufacturing, and Income Distribution by Eisenman, Jinjarak, Nyo, and Noi, and you can find the paper at link number eight in the show notes. The next paper looks at the issue of social capital and labor market networks. The authors explore the links between social capital and labor market networks at the neighborhood level. They harness rich data taken from multiple sources, including matched employer-employee data, with which they measure the strength of labor market networks, data on behavior such as voting patterns that have previously been tied to social capital, and new data on the number and location of nonprofits at the neighborhood level. The authors use a machine learning algorithm to identify potential social capital measures that best predict neighborhood level variation in labor market networks. The authors find evidence suggesting that smaller and less centralized schools and schools with fewer poor students foster social capital that builds labor market networks, as does a larger Republican vote share. The presence of establishments in a number of nonprofit-oriented industries are identified as predictive of strong labor market networks. These industries include, for example, churches and other religious institutions, schools, country clubs, and amateur or recreational sports teams or clubs. The title of the paper is Social Capital and Labor Market Networks by Asquith, Hellerston, Cutsback, and Newmark, and you can find the paper at link number 9 in the show notes. The next paper is on the economics of attention. The authors investigate the determinants of attention to financial accounts using panel data from a financial management software provider containing daily logins, discretionary spending, income, balances, and credit limits. The authors find that individuals are considerably more likely to log in because they get paid utilizing exogenous variation in paydays due to weekends and holidays. Beyond looking at the causal effect of income and attention, the authors examine how attention depends on individual spending, balances, and credit limits within individuals' own histories. The authors find that attention is decreasing in spending and overdrafts and increasing in cash holdings, savings, and liquidity. Moreover, the authors find that attention jumps discreetly when balances change from negative to positive. They argue that their findings cannot be explained by rational theories of inattention. Instead, their findings are consistent with ostrich effects and anticipatory utility as the main motivation for paying attention to financial accounts and thus providing new tests for information or belief-dependent utility models. 
They also show that some of their findings can be explained by a recent influential one of those models, which assumes individuals experience utility over news or changes in expectations about consumption. The title of the paper is The Ostrich in Us, Selective Attention to Financial Accounts, Income, Spending, and Liquidity by Olufsen and Pagel, and you can find the paper at link number 10 in the show notes. We next turn to a paper on health economics. The authors here study the impact of privatizing the delivery of Medicaid drug benefits on drug spending. The authors exploit granular data that allows them to examine drug utilization, and they find that drug spending would fall by 22.4% if the drug benefit was fully administered by Medicaid Managed Care Organizations, or MCOs. This result it largely emerges through lower point-of-sale prices and greater genetic usage. Excuse me, generic usage. The effects are driven by MCO's ability to design drug benefits and steer consumers toward lower-cost drugs and pharmacies. MCOs do not appear to skimp on performance, either by reducing overall drug consumption, as measured by prescriptions per enrollee, or reducing utilization of drugs that offset other medical spending. The title of the paper is A Dose of Managed Care by Dranov, Odie, and Stark, and you can find the paper at link number 11 in the show notes. The next paper is a paper on preferences and how traditional views of preferences in markets may not hold. The authors observe that enormous literature documents that willingness to pay WTP is less than willingness to accept WTA, a monetary amount for an object. This is an, a phenomenon called the endowment effect. Using data from an incentivized survey of a representative sample of 3,000 U.S. adults, the authors add one surprising additional finding. WTA and WTP for a lottery are at best slightly correlated. Across all respondents, the correlation is slightly negative. A meta-study of published experiments with university students show a correlation of around 0.15 to 0.2, consistent with the correlation in their data for high IQ correspondents, excuse me, respondents. While poorly related to each other, WTA and WTP are closely related to different measures of risk aversion. The authors show that the endowment effect is not related to individual-level measures of loss aversion, counter to prospect theory, or stochastic reference dependence. The title of the paper is Willingness to Pay and Willingness to Accept are Probably Less Correlated Than You Think, by Chapman, Dean, Ordaleva, Snowberg, and Kammerer, and you can find the paper at link number 12 in the show notes. The next paper is a paper in the field of finance. The authors observe that the main features of households' attention to savings are rationalized by a model of information aversion, a preference-based fear of receiving flows of news. In line with the empirical evidence, information-averse investors observe the value of their portfolios infrequently. Inattention is more pronounced for more risk-averse investors and in periods of low or volatile stock prices. 
The author's model also explains how changes in information frequencies affect risk-taking decisions as observed in the field and in the lab. Further, the authors find that receiving state-dependent alerts following sharp downturns improves welfare, suggesting a role for financial intermediaries as information managers. The title of the paper is Information Aversion by Andres and Haddad, and you can find the paper at link number 13 in the show notes. We next turn to the papers in the field of macroeconomics, and we begin with a paper on preferences internationally. In this paper, the authors present the Global Preference Survey, GPS, an experimentally validated survey dataset of time preference, risk preference, positive and negative reciprocity, altruism, and trust from 80,000 individuals in 76 countries. The data reveals substantial heterogeneity in preferences across countries, but even larger within-country heterogeneity. Across individuals, preferences vary with age, gender, and cognitive ability, yet these relationships appear partly country-specific. The authors observe at the country level that data reveal correlations between preferences and biogeographic and cultural variables, such as agricultural suitability, language structure, and religion. Variation in preferences is also correlated with economic outcomes and behaviors according to the author's analysis. The title of the paper is Global Evidence on Economic Preferences by Falk, Becker, Doman, Enk, Huffman, and Sund, and you can find the paper at link number 14 in the show notes. The next paper is on the topic of economic history and more specifically economic history focused on consumption. The authors observe that theories of household savings posit that households add to or draw down wealth to equalize the discounted present value of consumption over time. In this paper, the author examines the extent to which 19th century urban American industrial workers used savings and dissaving to smooth consumption in response to unanticipated, plausibly exogenous shocks to income. Information on the expected and unexpected number of days unemployed is used to construct estimates of transitory income. The author then uses the data and to estimate the marginal propensity to save from transitory income. And the, res- the author's results are broadly consistent with Friedman's 1957 permanent income hypothesis. The title of the paper is Were 19th Century Industrial Workers Permanent Income Savers? by Bodenhorn, and you can find the paper at link number 15 in the show notes. The next paper looks at the issue of fiscal policy and, in particular, the interaction between fiscal policy conducted at the local and national levels. The authors observe that expectations of bailouts by central governments incentivize overborrowing by local governments. In their paper, they ask if fiscal rules can correct these incentives to overborrow when central governments cannot commit, and if these rules will arise in equilibrium. They address these questions in a reputation model, in which the central government can either be a commitment or a no-commitment type, and the local governments learn about this type over time. 
The authors find that if the central government's reputation is low enough, then fiscal rules can lead to even more debt accumulate excuse me, accumulation relative to the case with no rules. This is because the punishment for violating the fiscal rule worsens the payoffs of preserving reputation. Despite being welfare-reducing, binding fiscal rules will arise in the equilibrium of a signaling game due to the incentives of the commitment type to reveal its type. The title of the paper is Fiscal Rules, Bailouts, and Reputation in Federal Governments by Dovis and Kirpalani, and you can find the paper at link number 16 in the show notes. We next turn to a paper on international economics. The authors study the relationship between exporters' organizational structure and output quality. They observe that if only input quality is observable, theory predicts that vertical integration may be necessary to incentivize suppliers to increase input quality. The authors use data on suppliers' behavior, supplier ownership, supply transactions, and manufacturers' output by quality grade and exports from the Peruvian fish meal industry, and they show the following. After integrating with the plant being supplied and losing access to alternative pay-per-kilo buyers, suppliers take more quality-increasing and less quantity-increasing actions, so there's a quality-quantity trade-off. Integration consequently causes increases out... Excuse me, integration consequently causally increases output quality, and manufacturers integrate suppliers when facing high relative demand for high-quality grades. The title of the paper is Vertical Integration, Supplier Behavior, and Quality Upgrading Among Exporters by Hansman, Short, Leon, and Teachout, and you can find the paper at link number 17 in the show notes. The last paper in this week's series is in the field of economic development. The authors propose a Bayesian factor analysis model as an alternative to the Human Development Index, or HDI. In addition to addressing potential issues of the HDI, the authors estimate human development with three auxiliary variables capturing environmental health and sustainability, income inequality, and satellite observed nightlight. The authors also use their method to build a Millennium Development Goals MDG index as an example of constructing a more complex index. The authors find the living standard dimension provides a greater contribution to human development than the official HDI suggests, while the longevity dimension provides a lower proportional contribution. The author's results also show considerable levels of disagreement relative to the ranks of official HDI. The title of the paper is Using Spatial Factor Analysis to Measure Human Development by Kui, Sung, Davis, and Chernis. And you can find the paper at link number 18 in the show notes. This has been Frontiers in Economic Research. Thank you for listening, and listen next week when my guest will discuss using machine learning to learn about energy efficiency.